Take your Bibles, please, and let's open this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Please find 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And today we're going to talk on the subject, where does God live? 1 Corinthians, in many ways, is a, a very practical book for every Christian. I've stated in messages previously that Paul is speaking to a very troubled Corinthian church. Lots of things were going on there. And Paul doesn't bring these things out in in the book of 1 Corinthians to air out the dirty laundry of this church and just to make a spectacle of it or to make it known. But the reason that Paul does this is because he wants us to see these problems and he wants to be very sure that we as the people of God today, we do not fall into the same kinds of pitfalls that these people fell into. Last week we talked about the immorality of the Corinthian church. And the place where they lived, Corinth, was a very exceedingly wicked city. Uh, Sexual perversion there was especially pervasive. And in the beginning of of the text that we're going to read today, we see how that the Corinthians made up excuses for their sins. And they acted as if being involved in these different things were just as natural for them. Being involved in sexual sins was just as natural for them as the body eating three meals a day. But then as we go on here, we'll see uh, Paul's argument against that. And he shows how that Christians are changed. Christians are different. And the greatest change that takes place in a person's life when he becomes a Christian has to do with the place where God lives. Now, the secret of a, a victorious Christian life is for us to understand Christ is living in you, if you are a believer. Christ in you, and he's the hope of glory. I'd like you to stand with me, please, as we read God's Word today. And as we read through the verses, I'm going to give you some explanation as we go along. And then we're going to talk about the place where God lives. Now, if you look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning with verse number 12, Paul writes here, All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. And what Paul is saying there in that verse is that there are many things that a Christian may do, and those things may not be sinful, but the context in which you do those things, they may indeed become sinful. So the thing itself, there may not be a command in the Bible against it, but if it hurts the welfare or it hurts the spiritual growth of another Christian, then you ought not to do it. Verse number 13, he says, "...meats for the belly, and the belly for meats." But God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Now that verse is interesting to us because it appears that the Corinthians were making an excuse that sex was as normal as any body function that you might perform. He said, they say food is for the body and the body is for food. You can eat any food that you want. And so likewise, uh, the body was made for sex and sex was made for the body. And so any type of sex that you want to enter into with any person that you want, that would be all right. But then Paul shoots down the argument in that verse because he's telling them that food is just a temporal thing. The relationship between the body and food is just a temporal thing. That's going to pass away. But the relationship that God has with the body, that is an eternal thing. The body is made for an eternal existence. It will enter into an eternal state. And so we don't have any right to do just anything we want with our bodies. Verse number 14, he says, And God hath both raised up the Lord and will also raise up us by his own power. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? If I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot, 
Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? God forbid. And, and what he's saying there, you don't have the right. Could you have the right to do anything that you want with your body? Can you use it for any immoral purpose? And he says that would be wrong. Now, verse 16, he says, What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two saith he shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. Now, in verse number 19, here's where we're going with this. We're going to talk about where God lives. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own. For ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Heavenly Fathers, we come to you today. We ask you that you might open our hearts to your word. Help us to better understand really deep down in our souls exactly where God lives. And may we understand today that Jesus Christ truly is living in us as the people of God. Bless in the message today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Where does God live? The truth is that God has actually lived in several different places throughout history. In my life, I've lived in about 10 different places. Is there anybody here who uh, grew up in a military family, for instance? And, oh, some of you. So you probably lived in dozens of places throughout your life. Well, it's also true of God that God has lived in several different places. But one thing I can assure you of about God, that God will not live in a dirty house. Now, you may decide that it's all right with you and you're perfectly fine living in a dirty house, but God will not live in a dirty house. Now, I want to begin today talking to you about God's previous houses. We're going to talk a little bit about the place where, where God lived in the past. Where, where are places that God lived? And by reading the scriptures, I, I think that we can actually find three different addresses where God lived. Now, if you go all the way back to the, the beginning of time, uh, God had a house. And the very first house that God moved into was the house of Adam. Now, I don't mean, of course, that God moved into the physical address or the place where Adam lived. I mean that when God created the first man, Adam, that God actually moved into Adam. I want you to take your Bibles today and turn to Genesis chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible today, then I want you to lean over, look at someone else's Bible. If you have a Bible today, share that with somebody else. I want everybody to read the Scriptures. We're going to look up a few things here today. Genesis chapter 2, in verse number 7, it says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. The Bible says that God took dust, he took the ground, he took the very dirt of the ground, and he formed the body of man. And the scripture then says that God breathed into man the breath of life. I want you to look there in the scriptures at that word breathe, because that's the very same word in the Hebrew as spirit. In both the Hebrew and the Greek, 
The word for breath and spirit and for wind are all exactly the same word. And so when God created Adam, Adam was nothing more than just a clay dummy. He was just like Play-Doh in the hands of God. And then God breathed his spirit into him. And so when God breathed into Adam, actually God was doing more than just giving him his physical breath. But what God was doing, he was breathing his own spirit into him. And so God came first of all to live in Adam. And then of course he came to live in Eve. But God had to move out of that house. And we're going to see why God did that in just a moment. So God moved out of that house, and then God moved into a second house. And the second house that God moved into was the house of the temple. He moved into the house of the temple. Now, turn in your Bibles now to 1 Corinthians chapter, or excuse me, 1 Kings. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 8. Uh, God moved into Adam and to Eve. We'll see why in just a minute that he moved out. He moved into the tabernacle, and the tabernacle really was just a tent. That was a temporary dwelling place. It was uh, to picture a more permanent place where God would dwell. But God uh, moved into another place, and this was the temple that was built by Solomon. Solomon built a temple for God, and then God moved into that temple. Now, in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse number 10, it says, And it came to pass, when the priests were come out of the holy place, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord. Now, what we're reading here is when Solomon completed the construction of the temple, and, and it was a magnificent building. This temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was very ornate. There was gold and there was silver there. And then when the temple was finished, there was this huge celebration. There was a dedication of the temple. And that was the day that God moved in. That's what we're reading about. Verse 10 again, it says, And it came to pass, when the priests were come out of the holy place, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. Then spake Solomon, the Lord said that he would dwell in the thick darkness. Now notice very carefully verse 13. I have surely built thee an house to dwell in, a settled place for thee to abide in forever. Oh, if you'd been there on that day... When they dedicated this temple, you would have seen a truly amazing sight. You would have seen this beautiful temple that Solomon built, the gold and the silver and all that was there. And then the glory of God, a cloud came down and it filled that temple. And that was God moving in. God moved into the holy place, the holiest of holies in that temple. God moved into it. In verse number 20, it says that Solomon built a house for the name of the Lord. But if you'll skip down to verse number 27, Solomon makes makes a very profound theological statement here. He says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and the heavens of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I have builded. And friends, as I stand here this morning, I recognize, just as Solomon knew, that this place, this physical place right here, cannot contain the greatness and the immensity of the omnipresent God. It's impossible to to confine God, who's throughout this universe, into one single space. But I also know this, that the Bible teaches us that the glory of God came to dwell in Adam. But then God had to move out of there. And then the glory of God came to move into this temple that that Solomon had built. But God also had to move out of that place. He didn't stay there. Instead, God moved into a third house. And this 
identification of the third house might be somewhat surprising to you. But God moved into a third house, and this house was the house of Jesus. God moved into the body of a man named Jesus. Now let's go to the New Testament, if you would please, and we'll look at John chapter 2. Remember, we're talking about places where God lived. He moved into Adam, but he had to move out of there. He moved into the temple, but then he moved out. But then God moved into this third house. This is in John chapter 2, verse number 19. Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. When Jesus said that, he was standing right in front of this huge temple, this this great edifice there that had been built And the people that were listening to Jesus that day thought that he was talking about that temple where he was. But notice verse 20. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building. And wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. So Jesus was talking about the place where God was living then. It was in his body. And Colossians tells us that in Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And so when you saw Jesus walking down the street, you were actually able to see God in the flesh. You saw God walking in that human body. You heard God speaking through that human body. And that's what the Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so God moved into Jesus. But then God moved out of him. Now you may be thinking today, what in the world are you talking about? God moved out of Jesus? Well, he did. And I want to show you why. God had to move out of all three of these houses. Now each of these houses all had something in common. And the reason that God moved out of these houses teaches us something about the character and the nature of God. Now, the first thing that we notice about all these houses that they have in common, that each of these houses was designed. A house has a designer, doesn't it? A house has an architect. It has somebody who draws up the blueprints, and you build the house according to the blueprint. And each of these houses were specially designed by God. Now, think about Adam. God designed Adam to be just like him. We read about this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. It says, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. What's God saying there? And and why is it that God uses those those, uh, uh, plural pronouns when he talks about this? I mean, why didn't God say, Let me make man in my image? But instead, God says, Let us make man in our image. And you know why he said that? Because God exists in three persons. There's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There are three persons, and yet there's one God. And when God designed Adam, he designed Adam to be like him. In other words, God created Adam as a house with three rooms. All of us as human beings were a house with three rooms. God designed Adam to have a body. And that body came from the dust of the ground. He gave Adam a spirit. And that's the breath that he put into him. And then the Bible says that when God had done this, Adam became a living soul. And so there we have the three rooms that comprise the house of a man. So we have a body, and by that we understand the world that's beneath us. We have a soul, and by that we comprehend the world that's around us. But we also have a spirit. 
And through the Spirit, God helps us to understand the world that is above us. And so here is a house, the house of man, that was specifically, in the house of Adam, that was specifically designed by God. But then also, the temple had a design. The temple was designed by God. He's the one who gave the blueprint. And there were three specific areas of the temple. The temple really in itself is one great big object lesson that we learn about God. But the temple had three parts. It had an outer court. It had a place that was called the holy place. And then there was a third room in the temple that was called the most holy place. And so as Adam had a special design, so the temple also had a special design. But then also think about Jesus. Jesus was specially designed by God. In fact, Jesus was so unique that there was not a person like him before and there's not been a person like him since. And do you know what made Jesus so different and so unique from anyone else? All of you ought to know the answer to this. We're just a few weeks past Christmas. We talked about it. And the reason that Jesus is so unique and so different is because Jesus was born of a virgin. No other person has ever been born of a virgin. Jesus was born of one. And because of that, Jesus had no sin nature. And the Bible teaches that because Adam sinned, all people die in Adam. And that's because all of us have this sin nature that's in us. And that sin nature leads to our death. But the Bible also teaches that Jesus was born without sin. He didn't have that sin nature. And that's because he was born of a virgin. And so the scriptures teach that in Adam all die, but in Christ all shall be made alive. All who trust him can be made alive. And so what God did, he had to have someone come to this earth who was totally different from man, completely different, who didn't have that sin nature. He had to be a different person in order to save us from our sins. And so Jesus was born of a virgin. He was specially designed by God. And so all these houses, Adam, the temple, Jesus... The houses that God lived in, these were all alike in that they were designed by God. Now, the second thing that makes these houses alike is that each house was desecrated. And if you want to substitute another word there, you can put in the word dirty. Each of these houses became dirty. And as I said in the first part of the message, God will not live in a dirty house. Well, what about Adam? God dwelt in Adam through his spirit God breathed into him the breath of life. And God said to Adam, he said, you can eat of all the trees of the garden. Everything that you want here, you can have. But there's one tree that I've reserved for myself. There's one tree that you cannot eat of. And we all know what happened. Adam ate of that tree. He ate of the forbidden fruit and he sinned. And when Adam sinned, his house became dirty. God said, if you eat of that tree, you will surely die. Well, we've all read that story. When, when Eve ate of the fruit of the tree, did she immediately die? No, she didn't, did she? And when Adam ate of the fruit, did he immediately die? No, Adam didn't die immediately upon eating that fruit. But we need to remember that God made man as a house with three rooms. And so what happened when Adam ate of that fruit? That immediately he died in his spirit. And when he ate of that fruit, he began to die progressively in his soul. And ultimately, we know that Adam did die in his body. So what happened? Well, Adam defiled himself. Adam became dirty by sin. And so God had to move out. Well, what about the temple? 
Well, the temple was a, a beautiful place that was built by Solomon. But that temple that was built by Solomon and the temple that came after it became dirty. And so it, was, it, it, it became dirty and, and so it was desecrated. The Babylonians came and they desecrated the temple that Solomon built. And in the time of Jesus, when he was standing right in front of that temple, uh, he said some very interesting words. He said, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And so that house had become dirty. Those Jews that, that worshipped at that temple, they had desecrated the temple. They had used it for the wrong purpose. And so God had to move out of it. In fact, this is true that God had moved out of that temple hundreds of years before the time that Jesus came. 400 years, in fact, before. Over 400 years before it. God moved out of the temple. If you go back as far as 600 years back in the past... The prophet Ezekiel uh, saw a vision from God. And in this vision, God, the Spirit of God, moved out of the temple. But in the time of Jesus, the Jews were still worshiping there. They were still making all of their sacrifices. They came to the temple as if God was still there. They acted like he was there. But God, in fact, had long since moved out of that temple. And that's because it became dirty. So we can understand this, I think. We can understand how Adam became dirty because he sinned. We understand how the temple became dirty and why God had to move out of the temple. Why he moved out of Adam. Why he moved out of the temple. Those places became dirty. But the question is, why did he move out of Jesus? Jesus never sinned, did he? Jesus never did anything wrong. He was the perfect son of God. So why would God have to move out of that house? And the reason is because Jesus became sin. And that's what 1 Corinthians tells us. For he hath made him, 2 Corinthians rather, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so Jesus became dirty because of our sins. All of these houses became dirty. Now that leads me to the, to the third similarity between them. Each house became desolate. Each house was deserted. God cast Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. He said, I can no longer have fellowship with you. He said, I have to withdraw from you because of your sin. Uh, Jesus spoke of the temple and he told the Jews, Behold, this house is left unto you desolate. This temple is desolate. It's empty. God has moved out. But what happened to the Lord Jesus? God had to move out. Jesus was hanging there on the cross and he had been made sin for us. And so he cried out to the heavenly father, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And because Jesus was bearing our sins, God the father had to turn his back on his own son. And so God the father and God the son were separated because God had to move out. That house became dirty because of our sins and God won't live in a dirty house. But that's not all. There's a fourth common characteristic of these houses. And the fourth one is that each house was destroyed. All of them were destroyed. Now, Adam and Eve, they eventually died. Solomon's temple was destroyed. The temple that was in Jesus' day, the one that he was speaking in front of just a moment ago, uh, Jesus said, a time will come when there will not be one stone of this temple left standing upon another. And true to Jesus' words in 70 A.D., the Roman general Titus came into Jerusalem and he completely destroyed the temple. 
Just as Jesus said, not one stone was left upon another. That place became completely destroyed. All the Jews thought it couldn't be destroyed. They thought that this is the holy temple of God. This is where God lives. And so it would be easier to go into heaven and to drag God right off his throne than it would be to destroy this place. But God had long since moved out. He wasn't there. And so that temple was destroyed. Then what about Jesus? What happened to that third house that God had moved into? Well, the Bible says that Jesus died on the cross. And when he died, he said, it is finished. It is finished, and then he died. And so throughout history, God has been moving in and out of houses. And that's because God will not live in a dirty house. So those are God's previous houses. We spent a lot of time uh, to get to this point, but now we're actually coming to the very main part of the message today. And that is, where does God live? Where does God live right now? Not the previous houses, not the places that he moved out of, but where is God living right now? And so we're going to talk about God's present house. Where does God live now? Where did God move into? Well, we know the places where God is no longer living. And if you go looking for him there, you won't find him there. But where will you find God living today? Well, this is why we have 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And here we come to the place... And with that background information that we've discussed, I want you to understand very clearly today how important it is for you to know the place where God lives. Now, a lot of people will look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and they completely miss the true meaning of this scripture. Paul talks about sexual immorality and we talked a great deal about that last week. He talks about all the evil practices that were going on in the Corinthian church. But that is not Paul's main point. Paul's main point is to tell them that they are not to commit these sins. They're not to enter into those things because he wants to demonstrate to them the importance of understanding that your body is the very place where God lives. Now, I explained some of the verses as we read through this. And I showed you your body, according to the Apostle Paul, according to the Word of God, your body is not to be used for immorality. Your body is to be used for the Lord. Now, if you look at our text verses again, we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And in verse number 15, it says, Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? God forbid. And then he gives the key verse here in verse number 17. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. And so that's what happened when you became a Christian. You became one with the spirit of Christ. Where where does your spirit live now? Where does God's spirit live now? He gives that in, in verses 19 and 20. What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. And you might want to underline that today. It's a very important verse in Scripture. Underline your body. That is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own. For ye are bought with a price. And the price, of course, is the precious blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross of Calvary. You are bought with a price. And so, therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit which is God's. Where's your spirit right now? Well, it's not out here somewhere. It's not floating around in space. Your spirit is in your body. And that's where Jesus Christ has come to live. When you become a Christian, what happens is the spirit of God comes into you 
It comes into your body and it unites with your spirit. And so God comes to live in your body. And so if you want to point to God's present address, what do you do? Well, let's do this. Let's do a a preschool, Sunday school type thing. Let's all point to the place where God lives. Where does God live, folks? Right here. This is God's place where he lives. Now, if you can catch that truth really deep down in your heart and deep down in your inner being that this is the place where God lives then that's going to change your whole outlook on the Christian life. And what you do daily and the places you go, the things that you say, the people that you become friends with, it's all going to change. When you understand deep down inside, this is where God lives. Now, there are some things here that that change, and your understanding about some things changes when you really understand where God lives. Now, the first thing that changes is that you have a better understanding of your salvation. A better understanding of salvation. You know, sometimes people think that salvation is getting man from earth into heaven. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get man out of this earth and get him into heaven. But salvation is not that. Salvation is all really about, really about getting God out of heaven into man. Getting God from up there into each one of us. You see, salvation is not just about going to heaven. Now, heaven's a wonderful benefit. Heaven's a bonus that you get when you get saved. But that's not what salvation is all about. Salvation is about giving the living Christ right inside of you. That's the whole point. Now, he is alive in heaven. He's alive over there. He's alive over here. He's alive everywhere. But the important part about salvation is that he comes to live in you, that Christ is alive in you, personally living in you. And so when you get that picture of Christ literally living in you, then it changes your idea of what you're doing here and what salvation is all about. It's not just about going to heaven. It's about Christ living in me now. I have eternal life now. And so I should be living for him because he lives in me. Now the second thing that you understand better is you get a better understanding of security. One of the things that Baptists are most famous for, and I mean besides no smoking and no drinking and no chewing and no dances and no card playing... And you can supply whatever activity you want in there. What we're most famous for is that we believe once saved, always saved. Now let's think about Adam. God moved into Adam, but he had to move out of Adam because Adam became dirty. He moved into the temple, but God had to move out of the temple because the temple became dirty. It was desecrated. He moved into Jesus' body, but then Jesus became sin. And so God moved out of an earthly body. But what about you and me? I mean, I'm a Christian, and I still sin. And you're a Christian, and you still sin, don't you? I mean, the Bible says if if you say that you have no sin, that you make God a liar, and his truth is not in you. So there's no doubt that all of us as Christians sin. But I've got some good news for you, that as a Christian, when you sin, God does not move out of you because God is done moving in and out of houses. God's there to stay permanently. He's through moving. And so God says, I'm never le- I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. So when God moves into you, he is not moving out. Well, why doesn't he? I mean, he moved out of all these other dirty houses. Why doesn't he move out of you? Well, the answer is that when Jesus comes into you, the first thing he does is to fix your sin problem. Now, you see, your house was a fixer-upper. And Jesus moved into you and he fixed your problem. He fixed the problem of sin. 
Now, we all know that we still sin, but what Jesus came to do was to fix that sin nature so that we're no longer under the penalty of sin. So the penalty of the sin nature is no longer there. Christ fixed that, and what he did was to give you a new nature. That's what he did when he moved into you. He gave you a new nature, and that's where that spirit lives. And so he's not moving out. And so because the penalty of sin has been removed, the Bible teaches that for every Christian, there is no condemnation. And so every time that you sin, the Spirit of God convicts you of that sin. And you know what he says? He says, I'm going to let the Spirit of Christ clean you out. He's not going to live in a dirty house, so he's going to clean you out. And so what Jesus does, what the Holy Spirit does in your life, sometimes he takes you to the woodshed, and he takes you out there, and he may have to beat the devil out of you, the living daylights out of you. He scrubs you behind your ears and everywhere else, and sometimes that's very painful. But he stays there until he cleans you out, because he's not moving out. It's his house, so he's going to clean you up. Now, here's the thing. If you don't experience that cleaning process, and if you keep on sinning, you go on sinning, you fall into these sexual sins, and you don't feel that cleaning process, and you get in all these other sins, and you can't feel a cleaning process going on, you know what that says? You were never a Christian in the first place. It says that God didn't actually move into your house. You may have claimed that he did, but if he's not cleaning you out, he doesn't live there. Now, you you might want to find a blank spot on your listening sheet today to write down that statement. If he is not cleaning you out, he never moved in. If he's not cleaning you out, he never moved in. Now, see what happens when a Christian, when a person gets saved, that they change. And if you weren't changed, and if you're not something different from that you were before, then Christ has never moved into you. Most people don't realize this, but this cleansing process, this this daily cleansing from sin, that's the most identifiable way that we know that we're Christians. That's the most assuring way that you know that you're a Christian. What do we do? All of us sin every day, don't we? And so that cleansing process is taking place all the time. And that tells us that we are really saved. But we get cleaned out in some very unpleasant ways. And that's why... I would always say that if you're looking for assurance as a Christian, I don't recommend this method. Don't fall into sin and let God clean you out just to prove that you're saved. You're not going to like the cleaning process. Now, a Christian, when God's cleaning, that scrubbing is not fun. I mean, the Holy Spirit is not like gentle scrubbing bubbles. Scrubbing bubbles says that they don't harm the finish. But I can tell you this, when the Holy Spirit's cleaning you out, he can rub the hide right off of you. He's not worried about the finish. He's going to clean you up. So the Holy Spirit lives in you, and that gives you a better understanding of your security. But then also, you have a better understanding of your spirituality. Now, perhaps the biggest misunderstanding that we find today among Christians, and especially among uh, fundamental uh, Baptist Christians, is this question. What does it mean to be spiritual? And people say, well, well, you don't act spiritual. But spirituality is not primarily in the way that you act. I mean, you can't always judge a person's spirituality about about whether this girl's skirt goes all the way down to the floor or whether she puts on a pair of pants. A person's heart can be as black as coal and they can wear the finest clothing and, and look good on the outside as they possibly can. That's not how you judge a person's spirituality. 
Spirituality is judged by Jesus living in you. And you know there are a lot of people that are confused about it. They think that when they come into these four walls of the church, that all of a sudden, now we're in the house of God. This is the place where God lives. And this is God's temple. And so this building to them, it's a temple of God. And so there are some things that they just will not do when they come into this place. You know, in all my years as a Christian, I can probably count on one hand the numbers of times that I've heard Christians curse inside of a church building. Things change. Your speech changes when you get into church, doesn't it? I remember when I was little that my dad used to call on on people to pray, the men to pray. and, And I would notice how things change when you're inside the church building. All of a sudden, the voice gets sanctimonious. It gets all spiritual. Oh, our heavenly Father, ruler of heaven and earth. And our speech changes. And a lot of people think that, you know, we're in here, we're in this place, and so this is the place where God lives, and so everything changes. But that same person, he'll go out in the parking lot after church, get in his car, and say, why in the world did that blankety-blank, expletive-deleted preacher preach so long today? So you've got it confused. The temple of God is not here. The temple of God is right here. And so when you go outside of this place, you are taking the temple of God with you. The temple is right here. Now, what would it be like if I said today, now, deacons, after church today, I want you to set up all the tables in the back because we're going to have a poker game after church. You'd say, not here. Not in the temple of God, you don't. Not in this place. This is the place where God lives. What if I say to the children, children, you need to behave because this is the house of God. But what if I said, children, you need to behave because you are the house of God. It changes things, doesn't it? It changes your idea about spirituality. So this building that we're in right now, this has been dedicated to the worship of God. But this is not the place where God lives. He lives right here. Now, lastly today, when you get this truth deep down inside of you that this is the place where God lives, then you have a better understanding of service. The true secret of Christian service is to know that Jesus lives inside of me and he wants to do his work through me. Now, I'll try to be like him. I I try to be like him as much as I can. I, I try to do the things that he wants me to do. But Jesus wants to do his work through me. And what if I change my attitude about that? So it's not what I'm trying to do for him, but it's what he's trying to do through me. Then I've got a different idea about what salvation and all these things are about and what it really means to have the Spirit of God and have Christ living in me. And so you have people today that they say, well, I've got to go out and witness I've I've got to do my two or three hours a week of witnessing. I've got to do that because the pastor said, you've got to witness if you're going to be a Christian. Or I've I've got to pray. I've got to have a set time to pray. I've got to have hours of prayer. I've got to read my Bible. I've got to get into that. I've got to read all of that. And they press and they press and they moan and they groan because they've got these things that they have to do. But when Christ is living inside of you, that changes because now those things are not things that you do. There are things that you are. It's totally different. It's what you are. Now you want to talk about Christ. Now you want to pray. Now you want to read your Bible. Because you understand that Christ is living through you. And it changes your idea of service. So where does God live? 
We know where he used to live. We, we talked about the previous places. But what is God's present address? God has moved in and out of several houses. Moved into one, moved out, moved into another, moved out, a third, moved in, moved out. But now God has a different dwelling place. I've left these last lines on your listening sheet blank. I don't know if you're saved or lost today. I don't know what the condition of your heart is. But I left this blank so you could fill them in for yourself. Because here is God's present address. If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, then you should be able to fill in these blanks this way. Send God's mail here. Because Christ, because God, because He lives in me. Send God's mail here because he lives in me. And friend, if he lives in you, I promise you, he's never going to move out. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, as we come to you today, in the end of this sermon, Lord, I I pray that the point has been made very clear to everyone here where you actually live. You've come to live in our bodies, and so that means that we must glorify you in our spirit and in our body, which belong to you. So I ask you, Lord, that you'd help every Christian here today to understand this very clearly, that wherever we go, whatever we do, whatever we say, however we act, that you are living in us and you are right there with us. Impress that upon some Christian's heart today so that we will live like you are living inside of us. Then, Lord, I pray for some lost sinner here today Maybe what I've said doesn't make a whole lot of sense to them. The Lord, open their hearts to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Open their eyes that they might see the very truth that we're talking about and they would desire to have Christ to come live in them. Speak to some soul today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.